Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we are now into April. It's hard to believe how quickly it's going, isn't it? But being in April, and actually sometimes Easter's in March, this year it's pretty late, but April 17th is Easter, two weeks from today. And I want to encourage you uh, to invite friends and family to come out in the foyer. And it's this size, I realize you probably can't see it from where you're sitting, but out in the foyer, you can see it more close up at the Welcome Center. Please take a few of these and uh, use them. You can hand them out to people. It gives the times of our Easter services. We'll also be having a continental breakfast between those services as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. And so I trust that we will uh, have an unbelievable celebration as we think of what Jesus Christ has done for us and his payment for our sin on the cross, but his victory over death as he rose again. Also on that Thursday, or the Thursday before, call it Monday, Thursday, we are having a Seder dinner here, and there's information out in the foyer about that. I encourage you to consider coming. Families are welcome to come to that, and it's a celebration of a Passover meal as we celebrate Easter season. So please stop in the foyer. You can ask questions or find more information about that there. As we begin this morning, we continue to pray for Ukraine, a new uh, set of prayer requests for Ukraine. We update that each week. It's on the website, and also a hard copy out in the foyer. But I trust that you are praying for what's taking place in Ukraine and around our world. So as we prepare our hearts for God's Word, let's pray. Father, as we come before You, may we be encouraged in Jesus Christ. May we recognize the hope that we have in You. And Lord, as we look at Your Word this morning, may nothing distract us from the principles that You have for us. Lord, this morning we continue to pray for Ukraine and the region there, the difficult times, the the evil that takes place and the pain and the suffering that's going on. We just pray for your grace and your mercy. We pray for those who have lost loved ones that you would comfort them. Lord, that even in the midst of a sinful world that people would see your love and your grace. We pray that we as your followers would be examples. We would be salt and light in this world. And Lord, that we would be people that would demonstrate grace and love. And Lord, we just pray that you would put an end to the war there. And uh, we just know that you are in control of it all. And we put it in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would be the hardest doctrine or command that God gives in His Word to follow? Just think about that for a second. What's the the hardest thing that God asks you to do? You have an idea in your mind? Well, as I thought of and pondered that question, three different ones came up to me, and I'm sure there are more. There are many things that are hard to do. But three popped into my mind fairly quickly. The first one is the doctrine of faith, or the command 
to obey and follow God and trust Him even when I can't see the outcome. That's hard. Or another one that, that uh, jumped into my mind, loving my enemy. <laughs> Sometimes I even have a hard time loving my friends, but loving my enemy. That's hard, isn't it? And there's a third one that, that may not jump to your mind as quickly, but I believe is equally as difficult. And that's submission. Willingly putting myself underneath another person. Now, as we've been continuing through the book of 1 Peter, we're into chapter 2. As we've been looking there, we find the next several sections, Peter deals with this incredibly difficult subject and command. That of submission. And we'll see in, in these next few weeks as we go through it, there's, there's three different examples that he gives of submission where we're commanded to submit. Submitting to our government. Submitting to our boss. And submitting and submission within the family. And these are three very difficult passages of Scripture. But before we get into the verses here in 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to read Romans chapter 15 in verse 4. I want you just to listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul said as he wrote to the Romans in, in this verse. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have this morning, we're going to talk about a very difficult subject. The challenge of living a godly life in relationship to government. To the authorities that are placed over us. But Peter begins, as, as he goes through in these, again, these next passages through verse 17 here and, and looking at our relationship to government next week, looking 18 to the end of chapter 2 where Peter talks about how we handle our relationship with our authorities in the workplace. And then the beginning of chapter 3 as we look at relationships within the family. All three very difficult areas to submit. But as Paul reminded us in Romans 15, and as Peter reminds us in these verses, it's important to recognize God's Word challenges us to be willing to submit. To place ourselves under. And he begins in the first two verses of this passage, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, to Remind us that simply we are to live a godly life. We see that 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. As we see in verse 11, it begins with an internal battle. 
He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners and pilgrims. And because this world is not our home, we have different goals and focuses. Sojourners, that term there in the Greek means alongside the house. This isn't our home. And pilgrims, we're just passing through. But even with our sins forgiven and the Holy Spirit guiding us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a continual battle with sin. That term war, that war against you, that term war has the idea and an emphasis of a long-term battle. It's a battle that will continue throughout our lifetime. We never will have fully arrived until Jesus Christ comes again and we will spend eternity with Him in heaven if we put our faith and trust in Him. And it's an internal battle that we face each and every day. But not only that, that internal battle in verse 12 will lead to some external actions, good or bad, in how we fare in the internal battle. Those, or the, the result of that internal battle will be lived out in our actions. Verse 12 continues on. 1 Peter 2.12 Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. There's an old proverb that says, I believe it's a Chinese proverb, it says this, Be careful of your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words. Be careful of your words, for your words become your actions. Be careful of your actions, for your actions become your habits. Be careful of your habits, for your habits become your character. Be careful of your character, for your character may become your destiny. Now we know Jesus Christ has died and our sins are forgiven. And as sinners, we can have the eternal destiny of heaven, but our character is crafted by our attitudes which lead to our words and actions which become our habits which define our character. But Peter is saying, listen, as you have that internal battle but you allow God to work in your heart and life, it results in different actions. And while our critics may attempt to speak evil of us, our conduct should quiet them and it should draw them to Christ. These verses remind us that the inward purity of life is to be demonstrated by an outward character. And that will silence those who oppose us and it will be light to the world. He talks in the end of verse 12 about the day of visitation. It's seen in the Old Testament as a time when when God came in either blessing or judgment. But as we see that time, we can recognize that as we live a godly life, it will influence and impact the lives of those around us. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're to let our light shine. Ruth Graham, the wife of the late Billy Graham, once said, a, a saint is a person who makes it easy for people to come to Christ. 
if you are a follower of Christ, people are much more likely to read your life than they are to read the Bible. After the challenge that Peter gives here to live a godly life, he shows some different areas in which we're to give, live that godly life and a godly life of submission. And so this morning, as we recognize the importance of that battle and the life that we live, how does it relate to our relationship with government? A godly life in relation to the authorities that are placed over us. And he begins in verse 13 with the principle. The principle is to submit. The first part of verse 13, 13a says this, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That word therefore. And if you've been at Hannaford much, you've heard whenever we come to that word, we stop and we ask the question, what is it therefore? It takes us back to 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. We see in verses 11 and 12 that that we're to abstain from the fleshly lust. We're to, to fight that battle through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that results in a different life. And it results in a different life by how we relate to other people. Therefore, how do we respond to the authorities in our lives? We are to submit. A military term, voluntary cooperation or willingly putting yourself under another. We're not to be subversive troublemakers, but instead godly citizens. And then he goes on and he shares a description of some of the authorities that are in our lives. The end of verse 13 and verse 14 says this, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now, the people that Peter was originally writing to were under the rule of Caesar. There are also 28 regions in the Roman Empire and or regions or provinces And they had governors in place of each of those regions. But Peter also included those who were put in place to enforce the law. And so with that in mind, we're called to honor our leaders in Washington, D.C., in our state, our local governments, and our law enforcement. God has allowed them to be in the position that they are in, and we are to honor them. But it's not always easy, is it? And Peter recognized for the people that he was writing to, and also for us, that it can be a difficult thing. So he reminds us of the purpose of submission. Why is this so important? Why is it important to honor our authorities? Why is it important to submit? Well, he says it in verses 15 and 16. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Verse 15 shares that, that submitting to authority is God's will in our lives. Back in verse 13, he said that we're to submit for the Lord's sake. 
But we submit to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, even when others may attempt to slander, to criticize our character shines through. This parallels the promise in verse 12 that our godly actions will draw others to Christ as we live godly lives in every area, including the area of submission. Others will be drawn to Christ by the way we live. Now, verse 16 may, may seem to be a bit confusing. It says that we're free. Doesn't that mean that, that we can choose to do whatever we want? However, Paul continues the description. We're not to use that liberty, that freedom as a cloak for vice or evil. But we're called to be bondservants of God. We're free to do what we should. Not anything we want. And he concludes that verse by reminding us that we're bond servants of God. We're willingly putting ourselves under His authority. In past passages, we've looked at that term bond servant as we've gone through different parts of epistles over the years. But a bond servant is a willing slave. And it comes back to a picture from the Old Testament when people were... Uh, indebted to others, they became their slaves. They paid off their debt. But then in, in the nation of Israel, they had a, a, a time of freedom where they were freed from those debts, from that slavery. But if a person said, you know, I am flourishing much better under the authority of this person I've been under, I want to willingly for my lifetime be their servant. They would take an awl and they would poke a little hole in their ear. Now we do it at Claire's. You can do it and get your holes in your ears. But, but at that time, they'd take an awl, they'd poke it in their ear, and it was a lifetime visible reminder of a commitment they made to be willing servants or slaves of that person. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're called to willingly place ourselves under His authority. And that's our ultimate responsibility. And part of how we do that is to put ourselves under the authority of those who have been chosen to govern us. To honor them. So that's the purpose of submission. And then he talks about our relationship to others. And in some ways you could say this just sort of encapsulates what he's been talking about in the last few verses. And in verse 17 he says this, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. We're to, first of all, honor all people. No exceptions. What does all mean? All means all. That's all all means. We are to recognize that everyone deserves a level of respect as they're made in the image of God. Even if they may think or act differently than we do. Love the brotherhood. We will draw people to Christ as we love one another. 
fear God, a reverential respect that culminates in submission to His will in our lives. And the final one, honor the King. They are to be honored as we recognize that God has established government and He has allowed them to be in the position that they hold. Now, we've gone through the basics of what Peter is challenging us to in those verses. So let's answer some tough questions. Maybe they're not difficult for you. They're difficult for me. But let's, and there are more, but we're just going to look at a few of them this morning as we put God's Word under the, under the magnifying glass and seeing how that relates to why, the way I live this week. Question number one, what, what if I don't think my government leader is godly? Now, I would ask you to raise your hands, but I'm not going to. Are, are there any ungodly leaders in our world? Hmm. By the way, there are no perfect leaders in our world. But that question is a question that I believe each one of us has asked no matter where we may be in this world. But, you know, as I look at some of the leaders I'm called to honor, I may feel that they don't really deserve it. But let's look at a couple things to help us answer that question. First, let's take a step back and and look at Peter's culture and the leaders that he was called to honor and to live under their authority. Now, as we looked at the beginning, as we began 1 Peter, Peter was, 1 Peter was written around A.D. 62-63. Now, there was, they were in, under Roman rule and there, was, there were Caesars that ruled. And, and the Caesar at the time was a guy named Nero. And if you've studied world history, you're probably familiar with Nero. But, but let's step back to just Caesars in general. Caesars were continue, or considered deity. And people were commanded to worship them. In fact, for Roman citizens, once a year they were required to stand before an altar to offer some incense and to say the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And when they did that, they'd be given a certificate which certified that they had performed their worship to Caesar and then they could continue to worship other gods and many of the people there in that culture, culture worship many gods. But their first requirement was to worship Caesar. Now what about the Jews that were under Roman authority? They could go back to the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. God speaking to the nation of Israel. And so as a Roman citizen... That was a very difficult thing to do. In fact, many were persecuted and even killed. But yet Peter said, 
You need to honor the king. Nero. Let's get to him specifically. You know, many of the Caesars had some pretty bad characteristics, but if you study history of that time, Nero was one of the worst. He was ruthless. He was addicted to power. In fact, in in A.D. 64, a large part of the city of Rome burned and many believe that it was Nero himself that started the fire. And and some believe that it was because he wanted to build, to have it all wiped out so he could build a, a large monument to himself. He was very much an egotistical man. But when the backlash came, Nero needed someone else to blame, so he blamed the Christians And he increased the persecution that was already pretty intense. And he would do many things. And my goal this morning is not to gross you out. There were many horrendous things that he did to Christians and to others who were part of his kingdom. Many Christians were persecuted, imprisoned, and murdered under Nero's reign. But yet Peter said, honor the king. Slavery. And we look at slavery and and we say, how horrible. But slavery was rampant in Rome at that time. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of the people in that empire were slaves. And as slaves, they were considered nothing more than property. Women were also very much considered property and badly mistreated in that culture. But yet Peter said, honor the king. Taxes. Taxes were another issue. The taxes we pay are nothing in comparison to the taxes paid in Rome. And oftentimes people like the Jews paid taxes for things that were very much a detriment to their lives. And we see Peter's command, well, how did Jesus respond? You know, we always hear the statement, what would Jesus do? Well, in Matthew 22, we see there's two groups of people that come together to ask Jesus question to try to trick him up and to turn the people against him. And it's fascinating the story if you go into Matthew 22. The two groups of people were the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now the Pharisees despised the Roman government. Now they tried to appease them so they could get power. They were some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees. But So the Pharisees got together with the Herodians. The name taken from Herod idea of they were sort of in many ways supportive of the Roman government. And so these two people or these two groups of people who were on the opposite ends of the spectrum got together because they had a common enemy, Jesus. So they ask a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And they figured if if Jesus responded by saying, yes, you should, 
Half the people are going to be angry and turn their back on Jesus. If he said you shouldn't, then the other people would be angry and also the Roman leadership, if they heard, could become angry. So they thought it was a question with no good answer. What was Jesus' response? He asked for a coin and he looked on the coin with, with Caesar's face on the coin. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So we need to recognize that uh, no matter how we, bad we may think it is today, it was as bad and really worse. Far worse when Peter wrote this letter. But another thing to help us realize that God has allowed them in the position they hold. It's amazing as you look in through the Old Testament and as the Israelites, God's chosen people, were, were captured or taken over, that God used some of those wicked kings to further his plan with the nation of Israel. One example is when Nehemiah was called to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. Artaxerxes, an ungodly king, not only allowed Nehemiah to go, but guess what? He even provided some of the materials and the permission and challenged the people around him more than challenged they had better the people around him better work alongside or offer them assistance God has allowed the people in position the third thing we can recognize that God can work in the lives and he can also use them for his glory But now, there's another part of the question that we must address. What about the times when we're asked to do something that goes against God's law? When man's law goes against God's. When man's law asks us to disobey God's law, we're required to follow God's law. But there's a caveat to that. And we see that in some of the examples that are, that are found in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 1, we find the story of the Hebrew midwives. They were in Egypt, and Pharaoh was concerned that the Israelites were growing, growing in, in population. And so the Pharaoh made a, a, a law that, and told the midwives that if a baby boy was born, a Jewish baby boy was born, that they were to kill that baby boy. And here was the response of the midwives in Exodus 1.17. It says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. What about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Throughout the book of Daniel, we see as they were required to eat the king's meat, which went against the laws that God had told them to follow as Jews. They respectfully refused. 
In Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to bow down before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had built, and they knew that they could not bow to any other god, what happened? They respectfully refused. In Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel was told he couldn't pray to anyone but the king, and he knew that God alone was the one we were to call to, what happened? He respectfully refused. In Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, when, when Peter and John and other, and other leaders of the early church, and Peter and John specifically, were thrown in prison and then threatened and said, you can't tell anybody about this Jesus. What did they do? They responded by saying, you can do with us what you want, but we can't stop sharing about Jesus. They respectfully refused. Now, civil disobedience, there's two important things to recognize. First of all, I must be required to do something that goes against God's law. And secondly, I still need to do it in a respectful way. So we're called to honor the king. That was the hard one. Now we'll get to the easy ones. What about Christians and politics? Ah, that's the easy one. Probably don't even need to talk about it, right? Should Christians be involved in politics? What would God's Word say? Well, the simple answer is, yes, we're all called to be, first of all, good citizens, to be salt and light in our world. And also, just as in every other part of our society, we need godly people in politics. And I believe that God calls many Christians into politics just like He calls Christians into every other segment of society. But we have to recognize that we're called to be godly in our speech and actions no matter what segment of society we're involved in. And we're called to do that to live godly no matter what our opponent may choose to do. And also, we can be reminded of what verse 11 says, that we are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. And our ultimate goal and our ultimate home is heaven. And we are called to follow God and honor His kingdom in the way we respond and react in every situation. Now, as a church, we are going to follow God's Word. Things like the sanctity of human life, God's plan for marriage, we will stand for God's Word. But we're going to do that in grace and love. You remember back to verse 17, the first phrase? We're to show love to all people. But what does God call me to do? Well, God calls me to be salt and light. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. God calls me to be a good and a godly citizen. 
And God calls me to honor the authorities. Even if I struggle with that person and what they stand for, I need to respect the position. And I am called to pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first four verses says this, Therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and, and reverence, that, or for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now those first two verses are often the verses that are used in our re- reminder that we're to pray for our leaders. But I want you to think of verses 3 and 4. Just as in 1 Peter 2, Peter gives the reasons why we are to be godly and why we're to honor and submit to our authorities. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul does the same thing. He says there in verse 3, For it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The way that I respond is going to make a difference. And you say, well, you look at it, it sure doesn't seem like it does. Guess what? I'm responsible to act in a godly way and trust God to work in the hearts and lives of others. And He can do that. And even if they are different, God can use me to impact this world. And God can use what they do. So, there are lots of things that you can do. But I want to challenge you with one specific thing this week, just as I challenge myself. Because I'm sort of a news junkie, and I like to watch or listen to the news, and sometimes it makes my blood pressure go up. Pretty much most of the time it makes my blood pressure go up. But, how do I do it praying for my leaders? And you know what? If I'm praying for them, even though I may disagree and and I need to be a good citizen, I need to stand for truth in, in grace. But it changes my attitude toward them. So the challenge for you this week is to list out your authorities. Some of them are easy to pray for. Some of them may be a little more difficult. But God calls us to pray for all of them. And so as we close in prayer, I want you to make that commitment to God that yeah, this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write out specifically the names and I have a prayer list, but it's easy to leave politicians off the list, but they need it just like everyone else. So will you make that commitment? This is a hard subject. When we look at our world and we question what's going on and why, but we need to come back See, because really all three of those, remember at the beginning I gave the three things? There's a reason I gave those three things. They're hard. (laughs) 
faith. I look at what's going on, and it's hard for me to see the outcome, but I still need to trust God. Loving my enemies, some of the people that are authority over me, I disagree with. Sometimes it's financial things. Sometimes it's biblical principles. But I still need to love them. And I'm called to submit. God is still in control. And the only way I can do those three things is by recognizing God's in control. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You this morning, may we recognize that You are in control. And Lord, wherever we are in our culture, in politics, we can recognize that You are a faithful God and we can put our faith and trust in You. Help us to be good and godly citizens. Lord, I pray that You would help us to pray for our leaders as You've told us to do. To honor them. And Lord, as we pray for them, we pray that Your Word and Your power will impact our community, our state, our nation, and our world. And we will give you the praise because we know it is through you and your power alone. And we are so grateful that we have an eternal hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.